Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining in this time on the PCICS Challenging Cases podcast, episode 5. Now, if you've listened before, you know that once in a while we do sort of drift away from the subject matter of challenging cases. There really is just so much to talk about in our field. In fact, in the future, we may consider changing the name of this podcast so that we can continue to explore other areas, although we will always do challenging cases. Now, this episode of the podcast does drift away from a challenging case and actually focuses more on a hot topic in our field, machine learning. If you've looked at the PCICS Summer Newsletter, you will notice that Jay Mazwi, Danny Itan, and Peter Lawson from Toronto Sick Kids wrote a very interesting editorial on this subject. Of course, this is a very interesting topic, but if you're like me, you probably have a lot of other questions. So we're lucky to have this recording of one of our PCICS Connections Committee members, Deanna Zanatos, who is one of the cardiac intensivists at Norton Children's Hospital in Louisville, who interviewed Jay Mazwi actually at this past PCICS meeting after he gave a lecture on this topic. She goes into a lot of the details that you and I probably were thinking about when we read the editorial. Before we start, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, or Stitcher. And if you want more information about the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society, you can visit our website at pcics.org, where you can find lots of great content, resources, or become a member. This is Dr. Deanna Zanatos from the University of Louisville Norton Children's Hospital. I'm here today with Dr. Jay Mosley from Toronto Sick Kids. Yesterday at PCICS, Dr. Mosley gave a lecture titled Machine Learning, Control, Alt, Delete, or the Future of Human Computer Integration. I wanted to talk with Dr. Mosley today a little bit more about his lecture. So Dr. Mosley, can you start out by telling us what is machine learning? Machine learning is a, is a field of applied artificial intelligence that allows software applications to become more accurate at making predictions. Uh, it, it can be considered a field of applied, narrow artificial intelligence in that this is very, very task-oriented and directed at making um, very accurate predictions about very specific types of data. Okay, and how does this apply to medicine, do you think? Uh, the, the predictions that, that machine learning algorithms make are based upon recognitions of what is called data regularity, which, which is a fancy way, basically, of saying, um, seeing recurrent patterns in data. And a lot of the phenomena that we are um, uh, most consumed by and concerned about in medicine are highly patterned biological phenomena. Um, and this is everything from the way, for instance, that we interpret electrocardiograms, through chest x-rays, through even the recognition of complex physiologic states at the bedside. The way that you identify something like, for instance, tamponade is, is by looking for the characteristic derangements in, in physiologic domains that suggest that that state is present. And this, this patterning of the phenomena that we um, typically use to achieve insight in clinical medicine provides great grounding data sets for machine learning algorithms, which can then essentially look for the same patterns and make very accurate predictions about whether or not the phenomena is present. So the, 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 because the diagnostic process of medicine, i.e. looking for features that support a prediction about a disease entity being present or absent, so closely parallels supervised machine learning, um, uh, the technique is going to be very powerful in our field and will probably dramatically improve our ability to understand what is happening 
with our patients in an instantaneous manner, meaning what's happening to them now. And how is this currently being utilized at the bedside? What is the state of the field of machine learning in medicine at this time? It's very, it's very much in its infancy. Um, uh, there, there, there are tremendously good examples of how um, useful and, and how accurate these techniques can be in other fields. And in many ways, machine learning is already very much integrated into our lives. Um, uh, several examples that I always like to give are, are things like the spam filter on, on your email application. As an example of, of machine learning in an applied format or Google search, um, which runs machine learning algorithms, those are examples of phenomena where um, uh, it would be very, very hard to explicitly program that application to, for instance, anticipate every iteration of every search that you'd want to do. And so you utilize a grounding data set to allow the machine to extract features that suggest how it should respond to specific search queries. Um, uh, this hasn't really arrived at the bedside in any applied way uh, in any unit. But um, there are very early but very good prototypes of where we're likely to see it first. And, and that's in the very highly patterned areas of medicine. So things like pathology, uh, radiology, and non-invasive electrophysiology um, uh, the, the patterning of that phenomena um, uh, is profound, and these are extraordinarily task-based or task-oriented areas of medicine that will probably be the first clinical applications. And the way that this would actually look when those come online is things like automated identification of rhythm, but with a much higher predictive ability than, for instance, the current monitor technologies that are not machine learning-based. Um, uh, automated identification of pathological patterns on imaging studies based upon huge grounding data sets of, of other imaging studies in a way that might invalidate some of the clinical roles that we associate with the clinical practice of medicine right now. Yes, it's interesting to think about um, potentially the implications that this could have as far as the ability for early recognition mm -hmm. of um, events that may happen. Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes in the in the ICU, we find ourselves playing catch up a little bit because we don't always notice the subtle changes or the subtle signs that um, alert us to an impending uh, problem with mm -hmm. the patient. And so it's interesting to think about how these um, machine learning could clue us into to earlier interventions of things. I think that that's an excellent point, and, and um, it, it actually ties into what we were just discussing. A lot of the examples um, in medicine currently, things that are primarily at this point, again, in the academic literature, not in, in integrated into care in any way, are examples of being much, much more accurate about phenomena that as clinicians we already know to look for, and are already pretty good at looking for. Uh, one easy example would be um, the diagnosis of an arrhythmia uh, using an EKG. Your, your point is, is one of the key points, because the way that this technology is truly revolutionary uh, uh, at the point of application is if it's able not to make you much, much more certain about things that you probably already know, but if it's able to, to as you say, kind of clue you into much more subtle phenomena that you might not be aware of that augment your situational awareness or your understanding of what's happening with the patient. Um, and so I think that that's probably going to be the way that we should appraise how these technologies help us and where in medicine when we do start to see them applied at the point of care. Yeah, I think even with technology such as NIRS monitoring, we have all said, you know, you will see the patient's NIRS begin to decline before something acutely happens at the bedside. And so cluing us into 
to not only that, but then we've also seen the patients where the nearest monitors decline and nothing happens. And so helping us to understand those situations, using um, machine learning to understand those situations when something really is going to happen, maybe incorporating all the other data that, that we have at the bedside on the monitors, um, heart rate variability, those sorts of things that we can utilize to predict events and intervene more yeah. um, quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely, and this is this is this has several potential benefits that go beyond um, things as concrete as do we know more about the patient utilizing these techniques? Do we have greater in, sort of instantaneous certainty about the patient condition? Well, one of the, the the things that I think is a preoccupation of many of us that work in ICUs is how toxic a work environment it can be from the standpoint of actually achieving insight. A lot of what we do right now when we monitor patients is crude signal analysis. And, and what I mean by that is you're standing at the bedside and you're looking at a crude, um, uh, barely processed signal coming from a variety of different physiologic subsystems. And your role as the intensivist is to try to integrate that data into some sort of workable hypothesis about what's happening with the patient that then you can go on to test. Um, one of the, the, the huge appeals of uh, techniques like machine learning is that they, they can if appropriately applied, be part of a much more integrated strategy of monitoring uh, in a way that doesn't just improve our insight, but moves us away from uh, the quite often um, uh, confusing task of trying to make sense of some small change in, in some aspect of physiologic signaling and try to, trying to basically try to figure out what the significance of that is. So I think, I think that, that beyond achieving insight, things like streamlining and improving our workflow and allowing us to spend more time in direct care of the patient and less time scratching our heads looking at monitors or remotely monitoring because we have earlier, um, better earlier detection systems uh, would be a tremendous advance for us as a field. Absolutely. And I think that that's interesting. What you said is, you know, allowing us to spend more time interacting with the patients. I think one of the fears that people have about machine learning or artificial intelligence is this idea that perhaps it could replace clinicians at the bedside. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Or, or Yeah, this, is, this has actually become a little bit of a topic of conversation in the popular media. And there, there, there are many examples of technologists making claims that would suggest that these are ultimately going to be replacement technologies. And I think that the big mistake that's being made um, by people who, who say things like that is failing to make a distinction between a task and a role. So, so making a specific pattern-based diagnosis of pneumonia from a chest X-ray or diagnosing uh, an arrhythmia from an EKG is a task. Um, uh, clinical medicine is a role that en encompasses a whole variety of tasks, but is, is a great deal more than that. Um, clinical medicine requires that you utilize your integrative intelligence to try to understand what your certainty about what's happening with the patient right now might mean for that patient um, or that family. Um, and it involves additional subdomains that are part of the unique sort of lived experience of humans, uh, which is how do you communicate that in a way that's not terrifying or in a way that, that, that facilitates decision-making? Uh, and then how do you express empathy or sympathy uh, in a way that allows that parent or that child to um, understand the compassion that you bring to the process of care? These are attributes of, of the role that we have as clinicians that machines will never do better than us. I, I, I think um, uh, that this is hype, to be frank, um, uh, and in some ways it obscures the much more likely outcome here, which I think is a much more powerful and much more positive one, 
which is that these techniques will dramatically increase our instantaneous certainty about what's happening with patients. We are all um, very aware of situations where we um, have had to practice in acute scenarios under conditions of tremendous uncertainty, uncertainty about exactly what's happening with the patient, uncertainty about what might be the best next step to rescue the patient. And having more certainty about those acute assessments will dramatically improve our ability to be proactive and will improve the quality of the information that we're able to communicate using these unique, unique human attributes that we just ran through. So this is, this is more likely to be a symbiosis, um, uh, essentially the best attributes of the machine to augment our practice in a way that, that provides us, I hope, with much more latitude and freedom to exercise the best attributes of a human in the process of care um, in a uh, uh, synergy that's likely to be more than the sum of its parts. Yes, I think that's absolutely fascinating, and I think it's it's interesting because at the end of the day, we still have to interpret the information that the computer gives us um, based on this particular patient. And so there's pattern recognition, which is a huge part of clinical medicine and where these machines can really help us, but there's also the interpretation in the context of this particular patient and this particular situation, which I think it, it will be very difficult for a machine to be able to replace that ability. At least initially. I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the machine learning will help us with personalized care and understanding specific exposures and instantaneous states, but in, in understanding the unique physiologic signature, say, of one patient uh, and differentiating that from another patient, um, a technique like machine learning is probably not going to be perfect at, at least initially. The interesting thing, though, about these techniques is, is um, that prediction as an event um, or an outcome is not a static event. And, and, and uh, I think this is a key thing to emphasize because it explains the other huge power of these techniques. They are not um, uh, uh, a single end point. You, you, just like your own learning, the, the algorithm um, makes a prediction and then continues to make predictions and iteratively improves its ability to make predictions based upon its success at, at carrying out the task. Um, and this is the process of sort of performance optimization that occurs after the classifier or model that it develops uh, is deployed. And so what that means is um, that what you're creating is not necessarily a static prediction as much as a learning system. And if we, if we deploy these learning systems correctly in healthcare, um, uh, we will be able to create a continuous learning system that basically as it experiences more and more predictions in real world conditions, um, uh, reflecting on the condition of real-world patients, it'll be able to hopefully understand in an iterative manner these important subphenotypes in the same way that clinicians do. So, so it's a very scalable technique that, that probably ultimately might be better at aspects of personalized medicine than you'd think, uh, but that requires um, uh, the creation of the sort of learning system that I was just describing. Absolutely. So do you think that this has implications in how we educate clinicians, how we educate physicians in the future? Uh, yes. And, and, and you know, my, my, my suspicion is that the changes that would happen in medicine are things that a lot of current clinicians wouldn't necessarily instinctively think of as good things. We, we are going to have to, I think, uh, dramatically increase our reliance on technology as part of this this shift that I'm describing. And one of the real challenges with, with machine learning as a technique is um, the nature by which insight is achieved. The, 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 the mapping of input data to prediction is, is a black box process. 
which we as clinicians are inherently very suspicious of, and possibly rightfully so. It's, it's very difficult to make an extraordinarily consequential decision based upon a prediction with no real understanding of how you got from the input data to the prediction. Um, and, and, and this will force us, a field, uh, the introduction rather, of a field like machine learning will force us to move away from things that we've held very dear in the field, like hypothesis-driven mechanistic research, which has really been the foundation of medical science. Um, uh, we're going to have to recognize that we are limited, potentially, sometimes by what we think we already know, and, and trust that these techniques, without some of our biases, um, will be able to create new knowledge. As far as um, things like direct programming um, as additional skills, for instance, that clinicians might need in this future that I'm talking about, I don't think, I don't think that that's necessarily going to become an integrated part of medical training. I, I, I wouldn't see that as being what this future that you and I are discussing is suggesting. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the more productive ways to introduce a new technology is in a transdisciplinary manner. And what I mean by that is have domain experts in one field helping domain experts in machine learning um, uh, deploy their technological approach in a way that, that leverages domain expertise where it's helpful, um, but then provides an extraordinarily um, powerful machine learning solution. Sometimes if you try to be basically a jack of all trades, you end up being a master of none. And I think that as clinicians, medical science is complex enough that we need to remain rooted and focused on that um, and rely on collaborations to develop and deploy the algorithms that will help us make care decisions. Do you have any thoughts on the patient perception of how technology can be integrated into medicine at the bedside and what families might uh, perceive from this? Yeah. So I don't. I don't have any objective or, or even good subjective anecdotal data. I, I will say um, that I, I sometimes think about this from uh, my perspective as a parent, and I think that, that above and beyond any other um, uh, feelings or thoughts about the health care uh, that they receive, um, what, what families really want is a successful outcome. Um, and and I, I think that if we can demonstrate that these techniques are not just safe, but safe in a way that improves the care that we deliver and improves um, patient outcomes, there won't be any barriers or resistance um, at the patient and family end to, to their deployment. And this is, this is actually going to be the other big thing that this will require of us, by the way. I think, I think that one of the things that, that I remain preoccupied by is how inefficient our process of care is. It, it, thinking about what care looks like, for instance, from the perspective of the patient. There's a sitting at the bedside, your, your child is uh, in a critical care unit, um, there's a potentially important physiologic change, and the nurse at the bedside is looking at the monitor, trying to decide how concerned to be. Um, the concern reaches some threshold that results in the fellow being called to the bedside who also stands there for a little while and perhaps does an exam. And if it's something that the fellow can't solve, then the staff doctor is called to the bedside and the process of standing there and scratching heads and thinking about things repeats itself. Um, an intervention is planned and um, uh, perhaps a new medication is ordered from pharmacy, which takes a little while to come up. It's double verified by the nurses at the bedside. It's hung on a pump and it starts to infuse into the patient and... Uh, in an ideal scenario, there's the desired physiologic change. And I, I, I often think about how inefficient that process is, meaning how long the lag is from when the concern occurred to its correct interpretation and the introduction of an intervention to correct whatever has been identified. Machine learning and the deployment of technologies of its, its, its type in medicine
focusing a part of what I think has to be a move towards what's called closed-loop state control. The, the, the same idea that, that um, now governs, for instance, the way that cars monitor road conditions. We need to not just understand the optimal auto-regulatory condition of our patients, but try to design systems that maintain that condition more consistently in a way that makes care um, much more rapidly available. Um, and I, I think that if families are seeing that the measures that we are um, engineering into our process of care move in that direction towards greater insight and precision, there'll be absolutely no resistance. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mosley, for your time and um, willingness to talk to us about this. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please look out for our next episode on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Or subscribe to get the latest episodes as they're released. Check out our website at pcics.org. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license.